You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, it's uh, been a great series so far. We're talking about shiny objects, and we live in a world of distraction, and our world gets easily distracted, right? I'm at a friend's house yesterday, and uh, he's got a little baby, and uh, the baby is across the room. He said, hey, my, my baby can crawl. And so uh, we're like, oh, awesome. So he sets the baby across the room, and he's like, come here, come here. Baby's not crawling. So what does he do? He pulls out his cell phone, and he turns that screen on, and he starts playing a little, little kid's song. Guess what that baby started doing? Crawling, right? Shiny objects. Like, whoa, we get distracted by lots of things, whether it's our shiny objects. We just get distracted by stuff in culture. We get our emotions go up and down and everywhere, and, it, and we get easily distracted in our world. If you want to make something important, you make it a shiny object. You come along and say, if it's important, we got to make a shiny object. And if you're an athlete, that's what you're competing for. And if you're in the workplace, that's what you're hoping to get. And if you are building a monument, you want to build it as a shiny object. And so you might have something like the Dome of the Rock, or you might give somebody a wedding ring, or you might try to win a Vince Lombardi trophy next weekend. When the world wants to make something important, they make a shiny object. And Jesus didn't build a golden dome. Jesus didn't uh, do anything like that to have us. He didn't build a golden cross for us to remember him by. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, and it's going to be made up of living stones. So individual people, individual souls are the ones who are going to make up my church. And it's not going to be in one location. It's going to go worldwide. And the church is going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. The church is going to be the one who responds to injustice. The church is going to be the one who is on the front end of leading the hope for people because we carry the message of Jesus Christ. And isn't that good news? You are being built up into a holy nation. You are being built up into a church. And so you're like... Like, I'm a living stone, and I rest on the cornerstone who is Christ, but God is utilizing me as a priest of the Most High God, that you, everybody in this room, if you've accepted Christ as Lord, you are a priest of the Most High God. Interestingly, though, priests can get distracted, can't they? Priests can get off mission. Priests can begin to respond to culture and they can get distracted. Priests can begin to respond to the needs of people and get distracted. Priests can start to think, you know what? Some of our ways of being a priest are inconvenient. Maybe we ought to live our own way and do things our own way. And that's where the people of Israel were. God had become really to them an afterthought. God wasn't the forefront of their thinking. He was a, something they reacted and reached back for when they looked at the condition of their culture. And you'll remember, as we looked at last week, we saw that the people of Israel took the Ark of the Covenant. They went out to battle, and they didn't take the Ark with them. They went out to battle, and 4,000 men were killed in battle. They regrouped. They said, what's wrong? They said, we don't have our shiny object. We better take our God blessing with us. So they tried to go back and get the Ark of the God's Covenant with them. And they carried it out into battle. And this time, 30,000 people get wiped out in the nation of Israel in that fight. And they lose the Ark. The Philistine people, the enemy, capture the shiny object. They capture the Ark. They take it back to their temple where their God, a big statue named Dagon, is. And they put the Ark out in front of Dagon. They came back the next morning. And the statue of Dagon has fallen face down and worship before the Ark of the Covenant. And they say, this is terrible. And they stand him back up. And they come back the next morning, and the, the statue is face down in worship before the ark, but this time its hands and its head are cut off, and they're put at the threshold of the temple. 
And God begins to judge those people. The people in that town begin to get disease. They begin to get inflammation. They begin to get tumors. And they begin to die in droves. Rats, the scriptures say, come throughout. And, and all this thing is happening. And, and people are afflicted in this way in these various different cities. And so one city, Ashdod is saying, get rid of the ark. It must be the ark. Let's send it to another city. So they send it to another city. Then those people start to get disease. Then they're like, ah, it must be the ark. Let's send it to another city. And as it's coming to that city, the people in that city are like, no, thank you. But they, didn't, but they came to the city anyway, and they start to die, and they are in chaos. They'll do anything they can to get rid of it, and that's where the story picks up. If you have your Bible, open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6. In your program, you have an outline. I'm going to have you take that out as well. If you need to grab a pen in front of you, do that. Sometimes when you and I write things down, we remember them far greater than if we just hear them. On the back of your program is some important information about your year-end giving statements for those of you who want to pay attention to that. But uh, on the front of your program is where we'll be in the scriptures today. 1 Samuel chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, and they said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. And they answered, if you return the ark of God to Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. And the Philistines asked, well, what guilt offering should we send to him? And they replied, how many? Five, right? Five. Five gold tumors and how many? Rats? Five rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. In other words, nobody's exempt. At the power of the hand of God, like Pharaoh wasn't exempt from God's judgment at the time of those plagues, in the same way, at the time of this plague, nobody is exempt, the rulers and the people alike. So he's saying to five, and I want you to know that in the Bible, the number five is the number of grace. Number five is the number of grace, and the Bible utilizes numbers. And so let me ask you just a couple things. How many smooth stones did David pick up when he went to face Goliath? Five, right? How many books of the Bible make up the Torah, the Old Testament law? Five, right? Keep working with me here. How many loaves of bread did Jesus multiply to feed 5,000 people? Five. How many Levitical offerings on, are there? Five. You might not know, but now you do. How many senses do humans have? Five, right, unless you're Spider-Man. How many husbands did the Samaritan woman have? Five, right, and how many fingers do you have? No, ten. You have, you have ten fingers. Unless you had an accident. Yeah, I'm just testing you. The Philistines, they wanted freedom from God's judgment, and the plague had begun to strike them. And, and it's interesting because we, we wonder, well, what exactly was that? And, and while we, the scriptures don't tell us, here's the name of the disease, all we know is the conditions that were happening, the symptoms, and what were the conditions. And so it's interesting because the Hebrew tells us a little bit more than just our translation to English does. It says that they experienced tumors, these swelling in the secret parts. Okay, if you're going to get a tumor somewhere or swelling somewhere, that's not the best place, right, to want to get something like that. And the, and the reference was to uh, the groin, and, and it was contagious, and it began to kill many. And so here you have rats, and you have disease, 
And then the entire episode is consistent with the disease that we would know and have named as the bubonic plague. In bubonic plague, fleas of the rat are able to transmit to the humans the pathologic bacteria, which invades the human body, causing fever and buboes, which are large, soft swellings in the armpit and the groin, right? Not great places to get that stuff. Without treatment, the mortality rate is 60 to 90%. And these people are desperate, whether it's that or just some other judgment of God. What we know is that they were getting tumors, this swelling in these places, and that rats were prevalent in their land at the time after they got the Ark of the Covenant. And they're desperate. They're willing to do whatever it takes to make it stop. So they call in their, like, magicians, their diviners, and say, well, what should we do? And the scriptures pick up at verse 5. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift what? His hand. Remember, his hand has been against them. His hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your heart as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when Israel's God dealt harshly with them? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? It's very interesting at this point because Israel has begun to treat God like an afterthought. Did God free the Israelite people from the the Hebrew people from the enslavery to Pharaoh in Egypt? Absolutely. But they kind of thought, like, that's an after God. I'm going to just reach for God like a shiny object. But here now, it's interesting because the Philistines, they actually are remembering Israelite and Egyptian history better than the Israelites were. They're actually showing more respect for God in this moment than the Israelite people were doing. And part of that is because they're facing this massive plague, but they're just saying, listen, let's learn from case history. When the hand of God was against the Egyptians, they finally relinquished, let it out, and that's when all those plagues stopped. Let's not be like them, they're saying. Let's figure out how to send this thing back. They actually were beginning to treat the Ark of the Covenant with more respect than the the Israelite people were. By the way, as we read the scriptures, how many Philistines looked inside the Ark of the Covenant? None. That's right. None. Of, of what we read in the scripture, none of them were like, hey, we got the Ark. That's great. Let's put it in our temple. By the way, let's peek inside the box. What's in that thing? None of them. We don't have any indication that any of them took a peek, looked in the box, figured out what was going on there. They just said, hey, we got this shiny object. We're going to gloat over it. And that's when the plagues began for them. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. That's important. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in the chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. And if it goes up to its own territory toward Bet Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. They're saying, how do we know this disease is actually the judgment of God or it's just a disease that happens to travel around. How do we know? We've got to know. And so if you're taking notes today, you've got to realize that first, if the ark heads straight to Israel, they'll know it's God. It's God. And secondly, if the ark doesn't cross the border, they'll know it's chance. 
See, they're down on the plains. They're down on like the Central Valley. And they're going to send this ark up. They're going to send it back to the town. The town would be in the foothills. Like if we tried to send it up to the foothills, you know, up I-80 and we started going that way. As you hit El Dorado Hills and so forth, as you go that direction, that they would kind of send it up to where the Israelite people were. Because right now the Philistines have the Central Valley. They're going to say, we're going to send it back. And we know if it goes up there, then it's the Lord. But if it comes back to us, this disease was just chance. So what do they do? How do they do this? How do they make this an impossible test? Well, they conduct the mad cow test. It's actually a mad cow test. Say, how do you wait? How do you know that? Well, what they do is I gotta let you know that, like here in Elk Grove, there are a couple nights a year where Farmer Pete, who lives just to the south of our house, separates his cows from the babies. And that night, the first time we moved here and the first time we heard it, I mean, normally we were used to like cow, like, you know, go out in the winter and it smells like cold cow sometimes, the wind blows right. And you go out in the summer, it smells like hot cow sometimes in the air. And, and it's just because we live where we live and there's dairies, right, you know. But, but there was one night we had our windows closed, it's winter time, and all of a sudden we just hear all night long because Farmer Pete has separated the cows, the mamas, from the babies. And, and they're not happy. They're lowing all night. And it's not like a happy lowing like, the cattle are lowing the baby away. No, it's angry cow. No wonder the baby woke up. You know, it's like, it's when, you know, the cattle is not happy because the baby's got separated. And, and what they're saying is, listen, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and separate the mamas and the babies. By the way, these cows have given birth. They've never been separated from their calves. They've also never been yoked to a cart. Like, they don't have a clue what to do if they get yoked to a cart. One's not a veteran and one's a newbie. No, it is two ones who have never been separated from their babies, and we're going to pen the babies up. Okay, it is a mad cow test because any cow, they just know, for the normal thing, any cow is, one, going to not walk, and it's going to try and get over to the pen where its babies are. I saw a video this week where they've designed this genius uh, thing for such an item, and that is when you're a farmer and you have your ATV and you're riding around, they have this cage that rides off to the side of you. And what happens is you ride this cage up and you flip a door open with a latch and you scoop up the little baby cow, the baby calf, and the door closes. And then the farmer is able to stop his ATV, step off into, he's still caged, and he puts the little cow in the back. And the mama's able to come around and sniff the cow at the back of the ATV, but she's so nervous, she's like angry. But the farmer's able to get in there, do his checkup, do what he needs to do as a farmer for a first check up with the calf, and then he hits another latch that opens the door. The baby jumps out with mama, and everybody's, it's like genius. Well, why would they build like a cage like that for farmers? Because when you got a cow separated from his babies, watch out. It is an angry cow. And so this is what they do. So it's verse Sam, for Samuel chapter 6, verse 10. So they did this. They took two such cows, and they hitched them to the cart, and they penned up their calves. And they placed the ark of the Lord on the cart, along with the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. And then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing. Why? Because they're angry, right? They're mad. We don't like this. They're lowing all the way. They didn't turn to the right or to the left. 
And the rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Bet Shemesh. Now the people of Bet Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. And the cart came to the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh. And there it stopped beside a large rock. And the people chopped up the wood of the cart, sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Let me just time out here real quick. You need to realize some of the illustration that's happening here. On the road from this area, from Ekron up to Bet Shemesh, there's one road that goes up and it gains elevation. I mean, it is uphill. It's not where the cows would want to go, right? On that road, there are two roads that dive off either direction and lead them back down into the valley. Those cows could have, in any way, they could have started walking and been like, no, we're going back to our babies. And at any time, they could have turned aside. But they didn't. All the way, they go up. And they arrive at the place, they arrive at the place in, in that town at Bet Shemesh, and they get there and they stop beside a large rock. And here's what I want to point out to you for just a moment. What I want to point out is this, that God provided everything needed for the offering, a rock, like an altar, wood from the cart, and cows to sacrifice as a burnt offering to him. God provided everything they needed. Like they were out in the fields working. They didn't have any preparation. But here comes this thing and instantly they realize the Lord has provided what I need to worship him. And so what happens is, right, God provides, this should encourage you. This should encourage you that God has given you everything you need to worship him as you should. Like honestly, like in this moment, some of you in this room, you realize what it was like the first time you're like, Lord, I'm going to trust you with the tithe. I'm not sure that you've given me everything I need to worship you as I should. And you tested the Lord in this. And you found out that God did more with 90% in your life than 100% you were doing on your own. That he's given you everything. Some of you walk in this room and you're like, I, I got to church and I'm surprised because the place didn't burn down. Because you just think of your own life. And you're like, what am I doing in a church? And what you need to realize is through Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross, God has provided righteousness available to you. That God has provided everything you need, even when you've run away, even when you've gone your own direction, everything you need to worship him as you should. But there's a very real evil one who wants to tell you that you should be ashamed that you have thwarted the plans of God, that you are not a good person. He wants to use every means possible to try to restrain the people of God from worshiping the living God. Listen, if this is any encouragement to you this morning, I want you to know that God has already provided everything you need to worship him like you should. It goes on, it says this, verse 15, the Levites took down the ark. By the way, the Levites were the priestly order. They took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on a large rock. On that day, the people of Bet Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. And the how many rulers? Five, right, of the Philistines saw all this. How do they see it? It was a straight road up that hill. And they could watch it go the whole way. They saw all this and returned that same day to Ekron. And these are the gold tumors that the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for each for cities, right? Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers and the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh. Land in those days and to this day in Israel 
is owned by families, and it's carried through generations among families. That's the way it works. So even years later, people can look back and say, this rock, this big rock right here is the one that was in the field of the family of Joshua here in Beth Shemesh. And some of you are like, Dave, it says Beth Shemesh. But it really doesn't because in Hebrew, the TH is a, is a hard T stop. It's Beth, Beth Shemesh. But that you could look, the people of Israel could look and say, this is the rock. Even years later, this is the rock that God had the cows, the mad cows, wander up to. He provided everything it was needed for a sacrifice to be offered to him by the people of God. And I want you to know on your outline, God is your source. He will provide for, uh, for me to worship him as I should. God is your source. Some of you think mistakenly that you have to be your source. You think it's all up to me. I've got to do it. I've got to come up with it. I've got to manufacture it. I've got to pretend or I've got to, I've got to try and de reach deep inside and bring something that I don't know if I have there with me. And what do I do if my heart feels cold toward God? And what do I do if, if I don't feel like I'm in right standing? And what do I do if, if I don't feel I have enough money? And I want you to understand that God has already done everything that's needed for you to worship him as you should. He's put no barriers. God hasn't put barriers out there that prohibit you from worshiping him as you should. In the Old Testament, there are a lot of barriers. You couldn't go into the house or the courts of the temple of God unless you washed, unless you were clean, unless you were cleansed. But at this point in time, listen, God is showing for you and me a step of courage. I hope it encourages you that if you are scared, like, Lord, I'm, I'm scared to risk and do this. I'm scared to honor you like I should, that God is saying, listen, take courage, take heart from this. I have already done it. I've already provided everything you need to be able to worship me as you should. You can come as a worshiper and be free. You can come and reflect worship back to me without fear of condemnation. You can approach God's throne boldly. He loves you. He's already done the work. But before we go on, I want you to realize that this was still a time when people did as they pleased. See, in the seven months the ark had been gone, people had not repented. In fact, if anything, they had just shoved God away, and then they had this major setback, this disappointment. They lost the ark, and they said, basically, you know what? We lost the ark. That, oh, we're so upset about it, and God must not be with us. So they just ran back to their own tent and did as they pleased. They continued to do whatever they saw fit to do. But now the ark comes back to them, but it really they are kind of unchanged. And so God is going to do something here that seems crazy to us. But God's going to do something here where he corrects people's disobedience, but he also assures them of his love. Why? Why does God do that with you and me? Why does he correct our disobedience and yet also assure us of his love? It's so that you and I approach him with the honor and respect that he deserves. And so that you and I begin to realize that he's our source. We're not our source. That God is our provider. The world and the government and everything else is not our provider. God is. That he's above all that. That he is the king of kings and lord of lords. That he's the one that we begin to repent of our dependencies on ourselves and on others and on our world. And we begin to turn our dependencies to the one who is our source. He loves us. And he wants us to return our hearts to him 
So God will correct us to approach him as God when we've treated him as a genie or an idol. Sometimes you've come to God and you've been like, God, I want you to do this for me. And God, I want you to do that for me. And you're testing him. God, are you going to be a good genie or a bad genie to me? Are you going to bless me or, or are you not? And if you don't, then I'm going to just find out a way to bless me. I'm going to be my source. And God loves you and I too much that he will say, listen, I will correct you to approach me as God. That you would seek who I am, not just what I do. You'd seek his face, not his hand out. So what does God do to the people of Israel? It's an interesting story. Listen, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, a very true historical account, verse 19, but God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. And the people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And all the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? What are they saying? They say, to whom shall the ark go up? We just got it back. And now what are they doing? They're trying to get rid of it. We just had 70 people die. Let's get rid of this thing. They're doing the same thing as the Philistines. Let's get rid of it. And then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Yerahim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it to your town. So come down, because they're up in the forest. They're up, the, the, in fact, kiriath Yeramin means city of the forest or of the woods. And they're saying, come on down from the forest level, come down to the foothills, get the ark, and take it back up to where you are. We've got to ask them, why do these people die? I mean, they had not had a chance to see Indiana Jones, and they looked into the ark, and they just, I, did they have no idea what was going on here? Why did they look in the ark? Why was that such a bad thing? I mean, you know, you'd think it was almost responsible, right? Like the ark got taken. We would read it and go, it makes sense. Like the ark got taken by the Philistines and now comes back. They want to make sure there's still stuff in it. The things that were in it when they left Egypt. The things that were were in it when they, they put in after they were in the time wandering the wilderness and God had them create the ark and they put in Aaron's rod and they put in a bowl of manna and they put in the tablets that declare the, the law. They want to find, are those things still in there? That's what we would think. But I need to be honest with you, that's not what they thought. We would think, how would they know better? But that's not what they would think. They would think we actually know better. Say, how in the world? What are the instructions on how to handle the ark and the mercy seat and and the presence of God? And you got to realize, again, the ark looks like a gold box. And on the top it has a lid. And on the lid there are two cherubim, which are not angels. They're cherubim. And they have wings. And they are stretched out with their wings toward one another on the top like this. And they're made out of gold. And that area is called the mercy seat. And that's the place where the presence of God, who was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night when they were in motion, would come down and rest in the tabernacle in that place. That was the presence of God. And the only people who could approach the presence of God were the high priest. But before the high priest could do it, he had, to, he had to cleanse himself. He had to offer sacrifices for his own sin and his family and the people. Then he could approach, and he could only go in there once a year. So it wasn't like an everyday occurrence either. And if he didn't do any of those things, man, he was a dead man. Because it was approaching the presence of Almighty God. So they give some instructions. This is very important information. 
back in Numbers, which is information that these people would have and they would know and they would have memorized, Numbers chapter 4, verse 5 says this, When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and put it what? Over the ark. So the priestly order had three different distinctions. There were three families involved, and each one had his place, his work to do when they would move the holy objects. And so what would happen first is you'd have the ark, and you'd have Aaron and his sons, the common priests. They would go in, and they would cover up the ark and the show table and other things, making it ready for the move. Then they would pack up, you know, the tabernacle. Then the Kohathites, who were the... Uh, another family of priests, they would then come in and do their work of actually moving with poles the ark. Okay? So that's what happened. Look at Numbers 4, verse 19. So that they may live and not die when they come near the most holy things, do this for them. Again, Aaron and his sons go in to the sanctuary and assign each man his work and what he is to carry. But the Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things, even for a moment, or they will die. So again, Aaron and the common priests go in and they cover up the ark. And then the Kohathites go in and then they do their work to move the ark. And so Aaron and his sons were not to move the stuff. That was the work of the Kohathites. And so everybody had their prescribed order. Everybody had their prescribed work. And it's kind of like this. I tried to think about how do I describe this to you. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like the you're going to move and it's like the movers pull up in the truck and they come up and they sort through everything in your house before they move it out, before you've boxed it up. Would that feel like a violation to you? Of course it would, right? Unless you're paying them to box all your stuff up because you're lazy. But, <laughs> and you got a business who's like, yeah, we'll do that for you. Like the military, they do that for you. But that would be violating, wouldn't it? Have somebody digging through all your stuff, boxing it up, and then carrying it out. No, our job is to pack it up. Then the movers come in and they take boxes that they shouldn't know what's in there to their truck and they should move it. That's kind of the idea. God had a very prescribed order that this holy presence by the high priest Aaron and his common priest would come in and cover these things up. Then the secondary level of priests would come in and move the things. They knew exactly what the instructions were about how to approach God. They knew what the consequences would be. So when the people of Bet Shemesh looked into the ark, they approached God with contempt and they died for it. So here we have... A battle seven months ago. And in that battle, 4,000 soldiers die. And then they regroup and they grab the shiny object, the Ark of God, and they take it out into battle with them. And this time, 30,000 of your soldiers die, and the Ark gets taken. It goes around the towns of the Philistines. They begin to get judged by it. They begin to have disease. They send it up and find out that God, it was in fact his hand, the holy God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, God Almighty, who was against them. They send it away, it goes to Bet Shemesh, and the people there have not changed since they lost the ark. And they again decided they would live and do as they see fit. And God judged 70 of them who looked into the ark and approached him with contempt, and they died instantly. Well, instead of responding to God's correction, so I mean, just think about it for a minute. In the last seven months, the people of Israel, you've now lost 34,070 people. And the people of Bet Shemesh just throw up their hands and say, it's too much. We can't handle it. Send it away. Get the people from the forest city to come down to the hill country and get it and take it from the foothills up into the forest. 
instead of responding to God's correction, they get frustrated and they send God away. Sometimes you and I do the same thing. God corrects. And instead of responding with our heart to God's correction, we get frustrated and we begin to send God away. Fine, God, if you can't do it, then I'm going to do it for myself. I don't like your correction. You're telling me not to live as I see fit. Instead of doing things your way, I'm going to just continue to do things my way. And so you send God away. And we push him out. And God goes, okay. You'll have the consequences of pushing me out. Can you imagine the blessings that they missed out on by sending God away? I mean, think about it for a moment. The ark, the presence of God had come back of all places to their town. Not up to Jerusalem, not up to some other place, but to come back to them. But because they treated the Lord with contempt and were disciplined for it, they didn't repent. They just sent God away. And sometimes you and I do the same thing. And can you imagine the blessings that you and I miss out on because we don't respond to the loving correction of God? Oh, God, that we would desire you. That our heart of stone would not stay a heart of stone, but it would become a heart of flesh when you begin to step into our lives and correct our disobedience and assure us of your love. Oh God, that I would begin to seek your face because far too long I've been asking for your hand. And my heart has not been desiring God. I've just desired what he's been handing me. All the blessings we miss out on when we shove God away and try and say, I'll do it on my own. I'll have the form of looking like the people of God. I'll have the form of being religious, but I am going to send God away, and my heart won't desire him because I'm going to try and be my own source. Let me show you this map. There's a map that shows where the, the ark had been. It starts up in Shiloh. That's where they send for, hey, Get the ark up in Shiloh and send it to Ebenezer and they take it into battle. But they lose it in battle there and it travels all the way down south to Ashdod, which is on the, the road right by the sea. And then, of course, at Ashdod, that's when the tumors and the rats start in the Philistine territory. And they're like, ah! So they send it to Gath. They send it back up the road and Gath starts getting some. They're like, ah! So they send it up to Ekron. And they finally say, okay, what should we do? How should we send it back? And they send it. You'll look at the topographical nature of this. They send it. From the flat country, the central valley, they send it up the hill to Bet Shemesh. But then God judges them for approaching him with absolute disrespect and doing it their own way instead of his way. And they say, let's send it up to Kiriath Yerahim. You say, Dave, that says Jerahim. But in Hebrew, the J is a Y. In Old Testament, Jesus the Messiah is Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah. So they send it up to Kiriath, Jerahim, and once it gets there, they put it on a hill, and I want to show you that hill. Go ahead, next slide. On the right-hand side, you see a hill. So the right-hand side of that picture, just beyond the trees, you see this hill, and that's where it went up to. So now it's in a forest area. We're not talking just, the, you know, the foothills. We're now talking up in the mountainous region of Israel, and there's a hill there, and that's where the ark sat for 20 years. It sat up there, and it set, sits up there until David, remember this is a time right now when Israel doesn't have a king, then later they ask for a king, God says, no, don't do it, but they say, we want a king because we want to be like everybody else. 
So he gives him a king. First it's Saul, then it's David. Well, this the Ark of the Covenant sits up on this hill for 20 years until David brings it up from there up to Jerusalem. And, and what's interesting about that is uh, David brings it up there. He attacks this the people who are in the city of what was Jerusalem, and he calls it the city of David now because he conquered it, and he calls for the ark to come up to where he is, and it's a brilliant political move. How many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. Twelve tribes, right? Each of them has allotted land. They have boundaries. They have space. And David, now that they have the ark back, David's like, all right, I'm king. And one of my first moves at king is I'm going to bring the ark and I'm going to bring it to this place called Jerusalem. And it's brilliant because had he simply brought it to his tribe, what would all the other tribes have said? They'd be like, oh, you're playing favorites, right? How come your tribe gets it instead of our tribe? Why is, why is the got to be in, in your tribe and not like ours. Is our tribe less important? And, and you can just imagine that there might be some Jewish argumenting you know, going on at that time and some snobbishness and turning their nose. But David makes a brilliant political move because he brings it to a place and establishes a capital in an in a area, a territory that is not assigned to any of the 12 tribes. Think District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., you think that brilliance came from American founders of our country. Let's establish a district though, so that no territory or state could be favorites. No, that actually came all these years before for David, establishing a political maneuver that was brilliant. And he takes it up to Jerusalem. Well, what was the response of the people? The response of the people once this ark had arrived up at Kiriath-Yerahim, Chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, verse 1. So the men of Kiriath-Yerahim came up and took the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. And the ark remained at Kiriath-Yerahim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to what? To who? The Lord. Did it happen overnight? 20 years. Did it happen with the primary generation? No, sometimes it takes a second or a third generation. But the people eventually turned back to the Lord, but it didn't happen overnight. Verse 3, so Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their asterisks and serve the Lord only. They got rid of their shiny objects. They stopped being distracted by many gods and they began to turn their heart to serve the living God and it took 20 years. But what happened right after this, just to let you know, is that the people started to make progress right away and they went out and they fought the Philistines and they subdued them. What happened? As they began to turn back to the heart of the Lord, the hand of God's blessing was on them and the power was not the shiny object. It stayed on the hill. But when they went out to battle, they went out in the name and the power of the Lord. They saw progress in their lives. Because of Jesus, you and I have direct access to God. You and I love him. We have direct access to him. We want to seek his face more than his hand 
Some of you, you'll do this. You know God loves you. You know, you know it. But you don't believe it. You know it. You would say, God loves all people. God loves me. But somewhere in here, you stop believing it. And you know your heart is cold toward God. And God at times will discipline us and draw us back to himself that we might seek who he is, not what he does for us, but seek him, that he is our treasure, that he's our desire, that God, how could you take my heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh? How could you take me to turn you back that I desire you more than what I think you'll do for me? And that's what he's calling you to. And let me tell you, sometimes we get distracted, right? We get distracted by what happens in our world. We get distracted by injustices. We get distracted by things in our culture. And let me tell you, you know, over the last couple months, I have seen more reaction by the people who call themselves the people of God than I have seen them represent the living God who they proclaim that they will follow. And it shows up in our words and it shows up what we type online. And I just want to encourage you as the people of God, as living stones, as priests of the Most High God, that you and I have got to get away from our distractions that are temporary and begin to focus on the one who is eternal, whose kingdom is the only one that matters. And there are people who are living stones all over the world, and they live in countries where they are, where they are persecuted or they are oppressed, and they would love to trade position with you or me. There are pastors preaching this morning who could die if they knew what they were preaching, and that one would love to switch places with me, and I'd be scared to death of it, wouldn't I? But I want to encourage you to live and react in our culture as the people who have the hope of the world, that we have Jesus, and our beliefs do matter, but people matter more. And if our beliefs cause us to mistreat people, then something's wrong with what we're believing. And God might come along and say, let me turn you back to desire my face and my hand. And that I will be your source, I will be your hope. Because these distractions of the world are turning your heart cold and against one another. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ... want you to ask God God I know you love me but have I been believing that you love me have I been believing that you're my source have I been believing that I can trust you that you're my hope and where in your life and my life the answer is no then let us be people who put away our distractions and come back to the living God and treat him with the honor and the respect and the power he deserves. Some of you in the room, though, you're saying, I, I don't know God. I've never given my life to God. I've never received Jesus' forgiveness that he offered on the cross. And what I want to remind you today is that all your sin, all your shame was nailed to Jesus Christ on the cross. He said, my hand's not against you, it's for you. And he took it upon himself so that the wrath of God against your and my disrespect of him would not be put on you, but that we put on Jesus. And Jesus said, I'll die. I'll die for the disrespect of people who have sinned against the holiness of God. 
so Jesus poured, God poured his wrath out on Jesus. Jesus paid for it all. Jesus, being God, rose from the dead. He conquered death. He offers you and I eternal life. He offers us the forgiveness of our sins. He offers us a chance to send his Holy Spirit to make us new creations on the inside. And if that's you today, then here's what I want you to pray right after me. You just, in your chair, right where you are, you just pray this. God hears you to say, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin and that you rose from the dead because you're God. I ask you to take my heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. I ask you, God, to forgive me and make me a new creation on the inside because today I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.